So turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, and I want to begin reading, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. And the verses go on in the next, well, the rest of the paragraph to expand upon that, and we're going to read those next verses in a moment or two. But I, I really want to stop there and set up what it is that we want to talk about today. We've, we've been talking about this Christian domestic code. And it started in Ephesians 5.22, and it, it addressed marriage, and it addressed husbands and wives and gender and roles. And, and, and we didn't shy away from all of that. God's word is pure and it's good. And then it talked about parents and authority and honor and we, we focused on that this last week. Today we finish up what is called this Christian uh, family code, if you will, domestic code, by seeing here what the scripture says about work. Now this isn't something that pastors preach on very often. It doesn't seem like something people would be interested in. Uh, what does the Bible say about work? But I, I think you'll see as we go through this this morning that this is some of the most important truths that we see in the entire book of Ephesians. Because how you conduct yourself at work says something about your relationship with God. And it capitalizes on an opportunity we have to honor God where God might not always be honored. And so I want to walk through and, and answer the question, how should a Christian work? How should a Christian uh, go to school? That's work for some. Uh, how should a Christian uh, be in high school or elementary school or, or in college? Or, or, or how should a Christian live his or her life at home with all the responsibilities that we have there? How should a Christian work? But before we get to the answer to that question, I think it's important that I start with the first word of this verse, verse 5, and, and at least answer a question that some people may be asking uh, that might keep them from hearing the rest of the, the, rest of the sermon. The verse begins with the word slaves. Now, I spoke about slavery a year ago, back in February. We were going through uh, the book of Philemon, and I think that was in 2021, might have been in 2020. And when we were there, we talked about what the Bible has to say about slavery and how the Bible condemns slavery, especially the chattel slavery of, uh, of U.S. history. But I do think it's important to, to say one more thing here because the word slave is going to appear in the verses that we'll read multiple times, and I, and I want you to understand the context. So sometimes people will ask the question, why doesn't the Bible more clearly and more boldly uh, condemn slavery? Why is it there just a verse in the Bible that says slavery in every form, in every way, in every part of history is wrong and there is nothing more to say about it. Why does the Bible in places like this place talk to slaves and employees and students? We'll see that this is a pretty broad category. But why does the Bible here talk to slaves in any term other than slavery is wrong? Well, that's a fair question. It's a hard question. It would be easy just to skip it, but, but I think we ought to address it. We ought to answer it so that it won't be a distraction as we go through this. And 
really, so, so that we'll know. It's an important question. So listen closely, because I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. But the answer to the question of why does the Bible not more clearly and boldly condemn slavery is that slavery is not a first order issue. Now, don't, don't leave. <laughs> Listen to what I, what I mean by that. Uh, the Bible always condemns abuse and disrespect and any kind of mistreatment in any way, whether it involves slaves or, or wives being abused or people being mistreated in any kind of institution, the Bible without question always condemns that. Also note that the Bible very specifically forbids man-stealing. That's the old Bible word for it. But we see this in Exodus 21, 16 and other places that if someone is just uh, captured and taken against their will and forced into slavery, the Bible says that is wrong and that it is a, it is a sin and the fruit of that work is sin the children of those people and so forth. And so that clearly condemns the kind of chattel slavery that existed in America. Also note that the gospel of Jesus Christ sowed the seeds of the abolition of slavery around the world. And if you go back and you study slavery around the world and how slavery uh, was abolished, you'll see that the gospel is front and center in that movement. Well, how did that happen? Well, because the Bible clearly teaches us that, that we are all created equal and that we are all equal in the eyes of God. And once we embrace that, it's only a matter of time before people will recognize the evil of slavery. And that's exactly what happened. But what do I mean when I say that slavery is not a first order issue? I mean this. The most important thing in a person's life is not his circumstances. It's not her circumstances. Even if those circumstances are difficult or unfair or terribly difficult and unfair, the most important thing in a person's life is what? His or her relationship with God. And we could do a lot of work to help someone fix their circumstances. But if we don't help them know Christ and know forgiveness and be adopted into the family of God, then we have accomplished nothing of lasting value. And we have to understand that the Bible was written to address the first order issue which is sin that separates us uh, from God. You know, churches need to remember this. Uh, it is very easy for a church to get so focused on issues such as poverty and injustice and equal rights and unfair housing and immigration and, and even bad marriages and, and poor jobs and, and difficult finances and lack of health care access and, and, and all those things are problems. And and, and, and it's easy for a church to get focused on those things first and let the gospel be in second place. But if we put those things first and the gospel second, listen, we will never get to the gospel and we will never help anybody. 
The gospel has to come first. And those things should come second. If we don't care anything about those things, then then it is true of us what it says in the book of 1 John that if you don't love people, if you hate people, then you are not a child of God. Well, I want to rescue people from poverty. I want there to be social justice and every other kind of justice. I, I, I want people that... To, to, to be rescued from difficult circumstances. I want people to be treated fairly. I, I think we need to take a stand against racism. Of course, all of those things. But the first order issue has to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this section, don't see in the Bible's use of slavery any condoning of slavery. The Bible always condemns mistreatment and the Bible sows the seeds of the abolition of slavery But understand that the Bible understands that the first issue, the first issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, and I got to go quickly here, uh, let me show you from these verses how to work. How is it that a Christian ought to work? Number one, you should swap masters. Now look back at verse five. Slaves, obey your human masters. Slaves, and this would include, as I said, employees, uh, students, uh, children. Uh, it would include e- even all of our uh, honeydew list uh, men and the things that we do around the home. Uh, when we're serving, when we have tasks and assignments, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Now, this is, first of all, an impossible command because to obey means that we do what they say, we understand the word, and then to to do this with fear and trembling means that we respect the one giving giving us the instructions. But then to to do this with sincerity means we like it. (laughs) And and there just be some times uh, that your supervisor, your instructor is going to tell you to do something and, and while you might be able to obey it, you're certainly not going to like it because you think it's absolutely not the best thing to do. And so this is an impossible command. There is no way I can always obey and respect with sincerity except for the last few words of the verse. It says to do this as you would Christ. Here's how you make this impossible command an easy command You swap bosses, you swap supervisors, you swap masters. So you're not serving the guy down the hallway, you're not serving the foreman, you're not serving the lady that's in charge of the bank, you're not serving the instructor, you are serving Christ. And you're going to do what you've been told to do and what's expected of you. And you're going to do it with respect because you respect Christ. And you're going to do it with sincerity because you love serving Christ. Here's what we do in our work. We swap bosses. None of us should be working for anybody but Christ. Now, Christ may have placed you under someone's authority for this season and in this job and in this classroom, but your real boss is Christ. Let us in our minds understand we are serving Christ. And so if you bake cakes for a living, you're not baking cakes for the company. You're not baking cakes for the client. You're baking a case cake 
for Christ. If you're cleaning restrooms, you're not cleaning restrooms for the office staff, you're cleaning restrooms for the Lord. If you're treating a patient, you're not treating the patient, you're treating the Lord. If you're teaching students, you're not teaching for the school, you're working for God's school and you're teaching God's children. If you're studying to take some instructor's test, you should know that the assignment has not come from the instructor, but from the Lord. And you're studying to please the Lord. When we swap bosses, then we can obey even when it's an unreasonable expectation. Because secretly, we're not working for that person. We're working for the Lord. When we swap bosses, then we can show proper respect even when our supervisor is not a person worthy of respect because secretly we've swapped bosses and we're respecting the Lord. When we swap bosses, we can be sincere about our hard work, not because our employer is worthy of it, but because we have swapped bosses and we're serving the Lord. You see this, uh, you see the verse on the screen, I added to it, uh, but you see the, the verse in white, but I want you to see it with my additions, if you will. So slaves, but it's talking about employees and students and servants, obey your human masters, that would be your bosses, supervisors, teachers, with fear and trembling, that means respect, and the sincerity of your heart, that means you really, really mean it, as you would Christ, since you have swapped out your supervisor for Christ. Can I give you one more quick benefit to this? If you will swap bosses, here's something else that'll happen. The most mundane task will become a sacred task. The most wearisome job that you have will become a great and an honorable thing because you're doing it for the Lord. I hear people say, I wish I had a better job. I wish I had a more interesting job. I wish I had a more important job, a more exciting job, a more respected job. Well, we say that because we don't recognize that we're working for the Lord. You're not working for the company, you're working for the Lord. And if we would recognize that, we would see our job as a sacred thing. The world esteems heart surgeons and fighter pilots higher, greater than it does dishwashers or parking attendants. But listen, the world is wrong. You see, our job, the value of our job is determined by the one we are doing the job for. Let me give you two job descriptions, just as an example. So one person might say, my job every day for hours and hours is to go and pick up trash, some of it more disgusting than you can imagine. I pick up trash in a prison yard between exercise shifts. So when the next group of despicable, violent prisoners comes out into the yard, there's not a bunch of disgusting trash everywhere for them to deal with. I hate my job. And probably not a person in here would sign up for that job, right? But let, let, me, let me give you another job description. Somebody says every morning before he begins his day of making decisions that will affect the safety and well-being of hundreds of millions of people, the President of the United States takes a relaxing stroll across the lawn of the White House. And I am the person who makes sure that everything is in order so that he can have a quiet and an undistracted moment before he walks into that office and leads the world. And more than that, 
when dignitaries come to visit the White House and they walk across the lawn and they walk through those front doors, I am the one who is responsible for making sure that we set the tone and we communicate the dignity and the grandeur of the United States of America, and I do that by making sure that lawn is immaculately clean. I love my job. Now, you see the difference? It's the same job, right? The only difference is who you're doing the job for. You may have a job that others would say is the most mundane, the most boring, the most pointless job in the world. But if you recognize that you're doing it for the Lord, it becomes sacred, sacred. Let me give you the second instruction very quickly. We need to work with godly integrity. If you look at verse six, he says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. What is godly integrity? Godly integrity is when what is unseen is the same as what is seen. Godly integrity is when our private words match our public words. You know what I'm talking about. Godly integrity is when, men, your lifestyle on a business trip is the same as your lifestyle in Nacogdoches. Godly integrity is when your secrets wouldn't betray your public reputation. I had a youth pastor one time preach on integrity, and he used an illustration that stuck with me for 20 years now. He said that integrity is when your backyard looks as good as your front yard. Now, uh, my front yard isn't, uh, isn't exactly immaculate, but it's a whole lot better than my backyard. Now, I guess that's okay at your, at your house, at your home, but if that is true of all the other areas of your life, if your public persona is one thing, but your private reality is something different, then that's a lack of godly integrity. So what this verse says is that we have a tendency to work better when the supervisor is watching. When the supervisor is looking over our shoulders, when the, when the teacher is grading the exam, well, well, now we're interested in working hard. But when the supervisor is not there or the teacher says that the exam is ungraded, then, then we're not as motivated to work hard. That is a problem with integrity. We need to be people who work the same no matter what. How can we be people of integrity? We can be people of integrity when we recognize our supervisor is the Lord. See, we've swapped bosses and we have swapped supervisors. And if I recognize that it's the Lord who is supervising me, then I'm doing the same quality job. I'm giving it my all, whether the earthly human supervisor or teacher is watching or not. So raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. If you drive differently, when you look in the rear view mirror and there is one of our fine Texas state troopers behind you, <laughs> of course we drive more carefully. Why? Because we're being supervised and we don't want a ticket. God is our supervisor but not in the same sense as the state trooper. God is not looking for uh, an opportunity to write us a ticket or to cite us for a, for a failure. God is our greatest cheerleader and God is prodding us on and God is honored. Whether anybody ever knows what we do and how hard we work, God is 
honored because he's watching when we give our best because we've swapped our boss and we're serving him. We should think like this. The Lord is watching because he cares for us. And we have a chance to honor him every time we serve. Now, number three, we need to permeate our workplace with the fragrance of Christ. Look at verse seven. Serve with a good attitude as, as to the Lord and not to people. An attitude, a good attitude. So why is a good attitude a part of this? Who cares what our attitude is as long as we obey? Well, it turns out attitude is, is very important, and the Bible says here it's important. Let me give you a quick primer on attitude. First of all, attitude is always a choice. Did you know that? If you have a stinky attitude, you know why you have a stinky attitude? Because you wanted to have a stinky attitude. <laughs> attitude is always a choice. Let me read something that Chuck Swindoll wrote a uh, famous preacher you may have heard of. He said, attitude is the most important thing in the world. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, more important than failures and successes. It's more important than what other people say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, or a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we will embrace. We cannot change our past. We cannot change that people will act in the way that they will act. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that's our attitude. Swindoll said, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% the attitude I have when it does. We are in charge of our attitudes. Second thing you should know about attitude is attitude is always contagious. See us throughout scripture, uh, Deuteronomy 28. I don't have time to read all of these. Uh, if you'll go to a, my website, noeldeer.com, in a couple of days, uh, I'm only preaching half the sermon, so just know it could be worse. Uh, but you can pick up some of these verses. But our attitude is always contagious. That's one of the reasons why when you have a relationship problem, stop praying for the other person to change and start praying that your attitude will change. Because you can't change the other person, but if God will help you and you will cooperate with the Lord and your attitude will change, then your attitude will change the other person. The third thing about attitude very quickly is attitude is the quickest way to set the stage for the Lord's work. And that's what he's talking about here. A Christian can always choose to have a godly attitude because of what the Lord has done for us. First uh, Peter 1 8 talks about the inexpressible and the glorious joy of the Lord because of what he's done for us. We ought to always have a good attitude because we have been saved for all eternity and adopted into the family of God. So if you have a good attitude at your workplace, that attitude becomes an advertisement for the grace and the mercy of God. But if you have a sour attitude at your workplace or your school, then that becomes a negative advertisement for the gospel. Do you know some people who are just sour? I know people that are so sour that if I was not a Christian and they told me they were, then I wouldn't want any of that. Our attitude is an advertisement one way or the other for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How should a Christian work? He should let his attitude be the fragrance of Christ in the workplace. Uh, the question that we should ask ourselves is this. Is my attitude, could I tell my coworkers or my fellow students 
that my attitude, look at me, my attitude, my mood, my disposition, my joy, this is what knowing the grace of God could do for you. Now, if you can't say that, you have chosen the wrong attitude. How do we work? We work with a godly attitude. Number four, we crave the Lord's reward, Ephesians 6, 8. I'm going to skip that um, and go, go to the end here. I've, um, I've tried to be practical today. The scripture is very practical in this part as it talks about how it is that we work. But I want you to see something, one more step. He tells us here that our work is not just a practical matter. You work, you get a paycheck. What he's telling us is that our work is a way we worship the Lord. What, what is worship? We think about a worship pastor, worship songs, worship room, worship center. But, but what is worship? What, what is the definition of worship? Well, here's my definition. Worship is anything done entirely for the glory of God. If you do something and the only motivation for you doing it is that God will be glorified, then it's worship. If you sing just for God, that's worship. If you, if you work and the real purpose of you getting up and going to work every day or cracking the books and studying for the exams every day is the glory of God, then your work is worship. Too often in churches today in America, we, we, you hear people ask the question, well, what am I going to get out of it? If I go to that event, if I come to your church, what am I going to get out of it? What am I going to get out of it? What am I going to get out of it? Well, listen, I hope you get something out of it. But the point of worshiping the Lord is not getting something out of it, right? If you're just, if, if that's the point, then it's not worship. Worship is honoring God just because God is worthy of, of our honor. Worship is when we do something for no other reason than the honor of the Lord. And our work, and it's hard to get to this, I know. It's work to get to this kind of work. Our work, if it's perfectly godly work, is always for the Lord, and it's always for the honor and glory of the Lord. Our work can be worship. I was reading this week C.S. Lewis, he, famous author, a Christian author, he, he noted something. He said, even in valleys, undiscovered by human eyes, valleys that no man has ever seen, God still fills them with beautiful flowers. Why would God do that? Because some things are for no other reason than the pleasure of God. And there ought to be things in our life, and work should be one of them, that is for the pleasure of God. Now I wanna do something today. I wanna to lead us in something that has no real practical benefit. And I'll tell you that. I want us today to take the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna do this, we're not gonna take long, I know everybody's looking at their watch. Um, but you know people ask me, we're gonna, by the way, our goal is to take the Lord's Supper more often in, 2022 than we have at least in the last two or three years. We're not going to do it every Sunday, but we're going to do it a little more often. And you'll see why as we go through this. But, but, but sometimes people ask me, Pastor, why don't we do the Lord's Supper? It, it, it takes up service time. We could get to the restaurant or, you know, we could do something more practical. Uh, how does it help us? What does it do? How is it practical? Listen, listen, church, are you listening? It's not practical. It doesn't help. It doesn't do a thing for you. 
It's not meant to make you feel better. It's not some magical incantation to bring forgiveness or blessing in your life. The Lord's Supper is for one purpose, that God would be honored. Does that make sense? I know I'm way over on my time, but I, I do something every morning, most mornings, and I, I say this just as an illustration. I, I hope it didn't come across the wrong way, but, but I leave my home early, and my wife is usually still asleep. And so before I leave, last thing I do is I uh, lean over the bed and I kiss my wife, wake her up. It's probably not a very nice thing to do, but I, I, I'm not saying she's not even in here. I don't think she's in the other service. So you can ask her if this is true, I suppose. But uh, I, I kiss my wife and I tell her I love her. And then I put my hands on her head. This isn't in the Bible. I, maybe I shouldn't do this. But then, I, then I, I pray just a prayer blessing over her. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know what that does? You know what that accomplishes? Nothing. I am. But you know what it is for? It's for the honor of my wife. And for the honor of the Lord that has given her to me. And there's nothing else. I don't get anything for it. Now, I did not do it a couple of Saturdays ago. <laughs> and uh, she asked me later in the day, why didn't you do it today? And I said, well, it's Saturday. I'm off. <laughs> that didn't go well. But you know, there ought to just be some tokens in our life. In our life that remind us that sometimes we do things just for the glory of the Lord. No other reason. Work ought to be that. Every, our whole life ought to be that. But the Lord's Supper is a reminder that there ought to be these times in our lives. So I hope you have the elements of the Lord's Supper. I hope I have the elements of the Lord's Supper. There are four things I want to say as we, just, as we do this together. First of all, first part of the Lord's Supper is the confession of sins. David said in Psalm 32, 1, how joyful is the one whose transgression, whose sin is forgiven and covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He said, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle and my groaning all the day long. David says, when I don't confess my sins, I suffer. And then he says, but I've acknowledged my sin to the Lord and I have refused to conceal my iniquity. And I have said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and the forgiveness of the Lord has come to me. The first thing we do is confess our sins. Just your head bowed and eyes closed. Father in heaven, I know in my life there are things that are that are not as they ought to be, they're sins. And in my mind, specific sins come to mind. I confess those right now to you. Because I know through the blood of Jesus, there's forgiveness. And it's only in you. Church, the next part of the Lord's Supper is the bread. Jesus took the bread the night before he was crucified and he broke it with his disciples and he says, this bread is my body. 
It represents that I have come. I am God, but I've come in the flesh and I've lived a perfect sinless life. You know, I've not lived a sinless life and you haven't either. But Jesus have, has lived it for us. And Jesus says, this bread reminds you, this bread represents my body, my life for you. John 6, 58, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like, your, not like the manna your ancestors ate and died, but he that eats this bread shall live forever. He, he was saying, he that trusts in Christ he is the one with eternal life. And we eat this bread believing that and honoring God right now for his goodness and his love expressed through Jesus Christ. Lord, you are worthy and I thank you. And after the bread, Jesus took the cup and he says, this represents the blood that I will shed tomorrow at that point. And I shed this blood, I will shed this blood for the forgiveness of your sins. He says that, and this had been taught to, the, to these disciples, to their, to their nation for generations, that the only way for sin to be forgiven is for somebody to die. And ultimately, the one who has to die is Christ. And he said, so... When you, when you take the cup, you celebrate the love and the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. John 1, 7, 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, and we celebrate that as we take the cup. First Corinthians eleven twenty six. the Bible says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father in heaven, may our entire lives be an expression of worship. May our entire lives not be about what we get or how it benefits, but may our lives and everything we do be about your glory and your honor your sweet love and your goodness. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.